The door cracked open this week for the greatest disruption of social media platforms, and it really could mean their end of power, control, and tyranny, stripping the power from them and putting it back into your hands. Hey, it's Lucas Scrobot, and you're listening to The Lucas Scrobot Show, where we uncover purpose, discern truth, and own the future. Thank you for choosing to be here with me today. If you enjoy this show, and if you enjoy this episode, by the time you get to the end of it, I just ask that you would share it with one friend. You don't have to post it on social media. In fact, I always find it more meaningful when someone texts me an episode and says, hey, I just listened to this and it made me think of you. When someone does that to me, I always feel loved. And guess what? I bet your friends want to know that you are thinking of them and it would make me feel loved too. Now, back to the premise of today's show, the disruption of social media. We really could be seeing it based on something that happened back on April 5th. But before we get into that, let's think about the the beauties of social media and why this matters to us, right? Through platforms like Facebook, like Twitter, like Instagram, like Google, we have this flow of information. We have this network effect where we are able to connect with people all across the globe, whether it's our old high school friends, whether it's our family or strangers that share the same affinity for, I don't know, knitting or running, whatever it might be. But these social networks allow us to connect and build tribes. But within that, we have turned to these social networks for our our flow of information and communication. Even if that is Google, if we're looking up something, we're going to Google and Google is feeding us the information. They are autofilling the information when we're searching someone's name or searching something. They get to decide what you see based on their algorithms. And one tiny little tweak of that algorithm can drastically change the way that millions of people think, the opinions of hundreds of thousands of people. The same thing happens with Facebook and Instagram and uh, Twitter. The, The things that you engage with are going to be the things that they feed you. And these platforms can spin and control, shadow ban, and put fact checks on material that they deem need to be, you know, give extra information. You know, we're seeing all those fact checks right now all across the internet. And we also know that shadow banning and throttling certain accounts are real things where these social media platforms have editorial power to silence speech that they find that they don't want on their platform, whether it's straight up illegal, whether it's spam content, whether it's um, whether it's not protected under free speech, or whether they just deem it something that is questionable or objectionable based on their criteria. Now, with this, with this provision of social media platforms not having the liability of being like a newspaper or an editorial, where these newspapers, if you're the New York Times and something is published on your newspaper, you could be sued by a private entity. I could sue the New York Times for publishing something about me that was deflammatory or making a a violent comment towards me. But these social media platforms 
in America and India alike under the sections 230 in, in America and Article 79 in India have given provisions to act more like bulletin boards so that they do not have to have editorial control of everything that is posted on their websites and they cannot be sued Twitter can't be sued over something that's posted on their website. But within that, it does give them provision to act as a moderator, to act as an a light editor, to curate that feed, to give you a better user experience, and to take things down that are vulgar or indecent or uh, promoting extreme violence or otherwise objectionable. So with that... If you remember back in the day when Twitter did not have an algorithm, at first it was great. You were following a few people. You really liked them. And I remember my phone would buzz. I get an SMS of every tweet that came in. And then we moved on to you know, smartphones, more digital platforms, and the, the channels became more and more filled. And soon you're getting such an inundation of content that it was content collapse. There's just too much and the user engagement began to collapse because there's too much information that was flowing through these pipes. The same thing happened with Instagram. If you remember, we used to have on Instagram the chronological feed. It was great because then I could just scroll through my feed and I could see, oh, I've seen this post. I have know when I've seen everything that's been posted in the last 20 hours or 10 hours or five minutes. But again, content got too much. Too much content was being produced and we began to see engagement collapse and content collapse on Instagram. So they moved to an algorithm to begin to serve you what they think that you want to see based on what people are engaging with, what you're engaging with, what you're liking, who you're commenting, who you're connected to, where your social uh, circles lie. Because of that, a lot of creators now don't see a lot of reach. Maybe a post is reaching three to, if you're lucky, 10% of your following. And that can be very frustrating for a lot of people. But with that has come a, a sort of health and longevity to these platforms because we're not inundated with so much content and we are able to have a, a slimmed down buffet table to choose from based on what we like rather than having a supermarket that's filled with every single product. I don't know. I'm a guy, obviously. And so when I go into a supermarket, especially if it's like one of those massive hypermarkets and there's just like 30, you know, 30 dish soaps, 30 of everything. And I get overloaded with the amount of choices that I need to make unless I know what exact product I need to buy. And so that's why my wife does the shopping and not me because she knows what we need and I often don't. But when I do go, I find myself standing in front of the shelf thinking, well, which, which one do we use? Which one's better? Which product should I choose from? And I get, you get that overload and it wears on the mind. The same thing happens with content. If too much content is being served to you, we get overloaded, it wears down the mind, and soon we just bounce from it. So this is the, the, the luxury that we have been afforded by these social media platforms is that it has curated our feeds to be able 
to hear what we want to hear and connect with who we want to connect with based on who we're engaging with. The downside of that is that they hold the keys. These social media platforms hold the keys of what you get to see on social media unless you actually go in and search someone's name to see if they made a post recently. But you and I probably aren't doing that. So that's the that's the the landscape that right now we enjoy in social media, that we're getting this flow of information, but it's being filtered a little bit before it gets to us. That's a good thing in some ways, but it's also a negative thing, a dangerous thing, because it's a few people who hold the keys to the algorithm that decide what you and I see, that decide public opinion based on the slight spinning of media that's presented to you because media encodes humans. The the information that we take in is like software in our mind that encodes us in what we think the opinions that we have on the world, an immense amount of power these platforms carry. And that power can be abused. That power can be abused to purposely sway people according to their agenda. Now, the argument has been, well, they're private companies. Facebook is a private company. Google is a private company. You know, they have their own First Amendment privileges, their own First Amendment um, and ideological political footings and ideas. And is it so wrong that they favor what they believe over what maybe you believe or what I believe? Is it really so wrong for a private company to do that? And that is the crux of the matter that we're talking about today. We're going to be touching on it today. I, I've been reading, gosh, I've, I'm definitely not smart enough for this. I've been reading all these blog articles from lawyers, breaking down all these court cases, making these legal arguments that, you know, I have to read through them three or four times to even understand what is going on. But I'm going to simplify uh, the Supreme Court uh ruling from last week by Thomas Clarence for you. I'm going to simplify it into a couple of points so that we can understand what it's being said there. Now, maybe you live in Saudi Arabia. Maybe you live in Kenya. Maybe you live in Poland. And you're like, well, what does this have to do with me? What the things that end up happening around this in America will radiate and echo through these platforms, because the the changes would be so large, depending on how this rules out in the future, that it would change the entire infrastructure of social media and drastically impact your experience, maybe for the better or for the worse, depending on how it how it folds. Also, places like India will probably follow in lockstep. Uganda might follow in lockstep, as all of these Germany, the EU might follow in a similar pattern, because. They are all looking at the amount of power that Facebook and Instagram and Twitter has over the flow of information in the world where these platforms are deciding which politicians get to speak and which politicians do not get to speak. They're acting as uh, nation states ruling over nations. In India, Facebook, Facebook said, well, we find that 
you know, you're acting outside of the realm of your own constitution and therefore we're going to block certain political accounts. Well, since when did Facebook or Twitter become the, the judge and jury in India? They didn't. And that's, that's, that is what these nations are looking at across the globe. And they're trying to figure out how do we solve this problem? Well, Justice Thomas Clarence wrote this judgment, and the judgment was about a case concerning former President Donald Trump, where on Twitter, he had some people who didn't like him. I can't imagine um, anyone not liking him. He was probably the most loved and endeared president of all time, and not one thing bad was ever said about him. But there's a couple of people on Twitter who were pretty critical of him. And so he blocked them on Twitter, and that then turned into a lawsuit where they sued the U.S. government or sued Donald Trump, making the argument that Donald Trump, as a public figure who often made announcements about the government and policies that he was enacting and communicating from a a public position was using Twitter as a public forum. And therefore, by silencing them from engaging was a form of government censorship and should be illegal. What happened was a second district court um, in America ruled that this was indeed unconstitutional and therefore former President Donald Trump was not allowed to block people on Twitter. And so Judge Supreme Court Judge Thomas Clarence, he reaffirmed and said, yes, this is the case. Just as if you had a hotel, if I owned a hotel and I leased it out to a government in the United States, let's say, that government is now holding a, a public hearing or a public debate around governmental issues. It is now a public space, a public forum, and now a, a government official in that hotel um, lobby or conference room cannot say, oh, I don't like your opinion. You need to leave the room because it is a, a place of public discord. The other side of the argument is, well, it's also a private establishment, Twitter, private establishment. It's not a government run public place of of conversation. Well, if there's a bunch of government officials sitting at a bar and a loud uh, uh, patron of the bar started yelling and arguing with the politicians, it would be within the government officials purview to ask the hotel manager to escort this unruly gentleman or gentlewoman out of the bar because it's now a private space. Even though they're a government official, they're in a private space. And therefore, you can't just berate someone that disagrees with you and disturbing someone's private time. So there's a clear difference. And Thomas um, Clarence writes about this in his in his uh, in his hearing, the the point, the end point of his hearing, a, a judgment ruling was saying, well, this is now a moot point because Donald Trump is no longer on Twitter. So we're throwing this case out because it's no longer applicable. He's no longer president and he's no longer on Twitter. And therefore, this case doesn't matter. But 
What does matter, he says, is a much larger issue. And he goes on to make an argument and raise more more raise questions of saying, is Twitter, is Facebook, all are these social media oligarchs like Google and Amazon, are they now at a size where they're really common spaces, common carriers for public discord, like utilities? A lot of utility companies are actually owned by private companies, but they are so large and such a foundational piece of society that they're considered common carriers. And with it comes a lot of special provisions. But with being a common carrier also means you can't discriminate. You you lose some of your abilities of First Amendment rights, freedom of speech, freedom of, of deciding who you want to serve or not, because you are now like a, a utility connected with and serviced with the government, and there's more government protocols and oversight on those common carriers. So he goes through and makes the argument, and we'll touch on that, but at the very end, I want to get to the very end of the argument, the last paragraph and a half that Thomas Clarence writes, because the case was all around Trump and some people that he blocked. But now Thomas Clarence is making a more important point saying, well, there's a bigger problem at hand, and that is the power that Twitter has. But he says this, but no party has sued Twitter. So he can't make a ruling on Twitter. So in in the United States, the Supreme Court does not make laws. It only decides whether a law is constitutional or unconstitutional. So just to be clear, This Supreme Court of nine justices in the United States, it's the highest court. They do not have the ability to write a law or make a law, and they can't even decide to challenge a law. All they are there to do is if someone is challenging something that's happened and it goes through all the lower courts, once it gets to the top court, they then decide how to rule on that court and whether it's constitutional or unconstitutional. So what Clarence is saying, Justice Clarence is saying, is that no one has sued Twitter, so we can't make a ruling on Twitter, whether it is a a common carrier or not. And then he says, the question facing the courts below involved only whether a government actor, former President Donald Trump, violated the First Amendment by blocking another Twitter user. That issue turns, at least to some degree, on ownership and the right to exclude. The second court feared that then-President Trump cut off speech by using the features that Twitter made available to him. But if the aim is to ensure that speech is not smothered, then the more glaring concern must preforce be the dominant digital platforms themselves. As Twitter made clear, the right to cut off speech lies most powerfully in the hands of private digital platforms. The extent to which that power matters for the purpose of the First Amendment and the extent to which that power could lawfully be modified raise interesting and important questions. The petition, unfortunately, affords us no opportunity to confront them. What does this mean? It means that Justice Thomas Clarence and the court sees that there are huge issues with the power that a few individuals who own Twitter and Facebook and Google have. 
that the power that a few individuals have to silence people is far greater than a government official might have to silence someone. And now the question is, are these companies, are they at the size where they actually need a level of government oversight? But unfortunately, as he says, this judgment, there's no space or opportunity to judge or confront them on this because I don't have a lawsuit in front of me on this hint hint. What he is saying effectively is this needs to be decided if anyone out there wants to raise a lawsuit and push it through the courts and get it up to the Supreme Court, we will be happy to rule on this because this is a huge problem. This is a huge problem with the way these platforms have been treated and how they are beginning to run in their, their editorial discretion, which now, he makes the argument, is really moving into something that is a common carrier. So what are common carriers? How do we decide what a common carrier is or is not? Well, in his statement, I'm going to read another section of the statement. In many ways, digital platforms that hold themselves out to the public resemble traditional common carriers. Though digital instead of physical, they're at the bottom of communication networks and they carry information from one user to another. A traditional phone company laid physical wires to create a network connecting people and telephone companies were considered common carriers, meaning they couldn't say, hey, we don't like what you talk about on the phone. We don't like your skin color. We don't like your political orientation. And therefore, you cannot use our phone. The law of common carriers say you must let people, regardless of whether you agree with what they are talking about, their First Amendment rights versus your First Amendment rights as a private company, that goes out the window. They are allowed to use your phone lines, period. But with that, you're not held liable for what they say on your phone lines. Goes on and says, digital platforms lay information infrastructure that can be controlled in much the same way. And unlike newspapers, digital platforms hold themselves out as organizations that focus on distributing the speech of the broader public. Federal laws indicate that companies cannot be treated as the publisher or speaker of information that they merely distribute, which that is what we touched on before with Section 230. So what does 230 do? As I said, 230 allows these platforms to publish things for you because you're actually publishing. They're acting as a more of a bulletin board, but they cannot be held liable for the things that you publish, while at the same time, they do have the rights to take down certain content that they deem objectionable or that uh, are not protected by the First Amendment. That is such as whether it's uh, lewd speech or whether it's defamation, right? You're not allowed to lie about someone um, yeah, that's not protected under free speech. You can't just slander someone else's name and bear fal false witness against someone else. That is not something that you are free to do. Pretty much in any country, there are severe penalties for slandering someone else. So there are limits 
to freedom of speech. But these companies have been afforded the rights to let you and I pretty much say almost anything that we want, but they also have the right now to put little fact check things on information that they might deem objectionable and therefore spin public opinion to what they believe because they get to choose which fact checkers are checking their facts. Likewise, they get to decide to throttle accounts or shadow ban accounts, limit the reach of accounts, or as we've seen, they can decide to even kick presidents of states off accounts because they deem their post objectionable. Thomas Clarence goes on, the analogy to common carriers is even clearer for digital platforms that have dominant market share, similar to utilities. Today's dominant digital platforms derive much of their value from network size. The internet, of course, is a network, but these digital platforms are networks within that network. The Facebook suite of apps is valued largely because 3 billion people use it. Google search is at 90% of the market share, is valuable relative to other search engines because more people use it, creating data that Google's algorithm uses to refine and improve search. These network effects entrench these companies. Ordinarily, the astronomical profit margins of these platforms last year, Google brought in $182.5 billion dollars, $40.3 billion in net income and profit. Normally, these platforms would induce new entrants into the market. That is, normally, if you have a, a platform of this size, a market of this size, there'd be a lot of people entering the market to compete with Google. But these companies have such a large barrier to entry that people really cannot enter in and compete with Google because of their size and market share and the barriers to entry. Implying that what he's saying here is these things are so big and there doesn't seem to be a lot of room to be able to challenge them because of their network effect and market share that really they have become like utilities and therefore they are probably falling, beginning to fall under the purview of becoming a common carrier. So what? Much like with a communication network, this gives concentration. Much like a communication utility, this concentration gives some digital platform enormous control over speech. When a user does not already know exactly where to find something on the internet, and users rarely do, Google is a gatekeeper between that user and the speech of others 90% of the time. It can suppress content by de-indexing or downlisting a search result or by steering users away from certain content by manually altering autocomplete results. Hmm. Facebook and Twitter can greatly narrow a person's information flow through similar means. And as the distributor of the clear majority of eBooks and about half of all physical books, Amazon can impose cataclysmic consequences on authors, among other things, by blocking a listing. These platforms have enormous power. Enormous power that has created enormous wealth, and not just physical wealth, but, but relational wealth for you and I, because we're now able to connect. 
and network because of these platforms. But at the same time, we have given over control to these platforms to control the flow of information. Now, email in a similar way, it gives us the power to connect with anyone in the world, but it is broad and decentralized. And therefore, you're not able to control what is coming into my inbox. I get to control that. Now, if you're on a platform like Google, again, they're having spam boxes and promotional boxes. So they're able to siphon that stuff away, but you can still go in and see it and access it. Or you can choose a provider and there's many providers out there, or you can search your own server where you get everything that is coming into your inbox. Two very different worlds, but both are very connectivity, brings connectivity, but one, we're giving over power. So, so what? What would this mean? What would it mean if the U.S. government decided that indeed Section 230 is in some ways unconstitutional? What would it mean if the U.S. government, the Supreme Court, decided that these companies now can be held liable and they should be treated like publishers and editorials and or they do not have the right to curate or censor or edit or take down or block users at all. What would happen? Well, we can consider the first world a universe, an alternative universe that we might live in if all of a sudden these platforms were were forced to act as publishers like the New York Times where now they're liable for every single thing that is posted on their platform and they can be sued for anything that is said on their platform. They would have to go through and check every post. They would have to hire an enormous amount of people or invest an enormous amount into AI and there would be an enormous amount of lawsuits against them. The, the load on the system would be so great that they would be forced to limit who could publish and who could share and the reach of those people. Or maybe the, the reach of people like you or I who aren't, that don't have a blue check, that don't have followings of millions of people who aren't willing to sign a waiver saying that we will comply and follow by all these laws all these rules and we'll follow your prerogative and, and your, your, uh, your spin on speech. Well, maybe you are only able to direct message a few people and view and subscribe to the celebrities or the politicians or the publications that you decide that you want to see or they decide that you want to see or are able to see. It really closes down the open world. It's the gatekeepers stepping back in and saying, okay, we'll act as a publisher and we'll limit all the information flow and we'll make sure that everything that is being published, we will not be sued for. Closing the gates. Why would they have to do that? Because the government would step in and say, we have to control this. So that's one way it can go. The other way that would go is a total free-for-all, like the telephone line. How many times does your phone ring or you get a text message with spam on it? It's just a free fall. Anyone can use it. And so if it goes the other way, where there is no curation, where there's no censoring or no editorial oversight, where there's no moderation, where all lewd and obscene things can be posted, all spammers and hackers can just freely run wild, that also is chaos. 
And that is a chaos and a platform that probably after a while, you and I really wouldn't like to live on. And we will begin to insulate ourselves from all of that noise. What is the solution? What is the, the answer to this problem that I, be, I do believe is looming ahead? I, I do not think that I do not think that these companies, these platforms continue in the way that they have been with such power where they can just in a moment's notice turn you off. They can just shut down your ability to connect and communicate with people. You could have built a platform, built a platform of of 100,000 or a million people or, or like former President Donald Trump, 89 million people. And because they finally decide they don't like you, they have the right to end and terminate your account for no reason at all. That's within their terms. They hold the power. They hold the keys. Now, much is the same as, as we witnessed with some other social media apps like Parler, that, that not only do these social media platforms hold the power, but platforms like Amazon Web Services, hosting services, Apple can decide if your app is on their platform or not because it's all centralized power and the few people at the top of these centralized powers who have, who have built these pipelines that have added so much value to society, they now get to decide what can and can't go up on their sites. So where does this leave us? Where does this drive us? What is the solution? Well, the solution is really starting now to move to decentralized platforms. The solution is to now own your own email list. If, if you're following people or people are following you that you're connecting with, that you want to stay connected with, get their email list, get their phone number, begin to build off-platform communities where no one can just flick a switch and turn your communication off, to turn your communication off to the rest of the world. Now, you may be saying, well, I'm probably not saying anything that requires me to decentralize in such a manner. But you never know when the tides might shift. You never know when something might come up that actually you are now passionate about, but the establishments don't like, that the establishments are fighting against. Don't go away. We will be right back with our closing segment from Weaver and Loom. Welcome back to Weaver and Loom, the part of the show where we take ancient wisdom and weave it in with our everyday lives so that we can weave our destiny and own our futures. We've been talking about the control of social media platforms and how they could very quickly lose that control and it will, it will result in either a free-for-all or most of the voices and the free flow of information being shut down and transitioning to only a few gatekeepers who transition to uh, membership sites, who transition to you as an individual going out and finding and curating your own feed, whether it's through an RSS feed or whether it's through uh, email subscriptions, paid subscriptions. And if you want to run and have a platform where you're able to connect with your audience, you will have to do the same thing. You will have to begin to build up your own 
ecosystem of people who believe in you, who want to hear from you, who follow you, who want to have uh, discords and uh, discord and uh, critical and analytical thinking and debates with you. You have to begin to go out and build that community. And I strongly suggest, I strongly suggest that you begin to build that community now. While these channels are still open, while they are still available, before government oversight begins to step in, because you might be hearing me say, oh, Lucas is pro-government oversight. We should just have the government control social media. I don't think that's a good idea either. I don't, I'm, I'm not for more government control, but I'm also not for a few people being able to shape the narrative and the, the media that is going out and, and swaying global, global elections. Global elections are being swayed. Wars are being won and lost on these social media platforms by you know a, a tenth of a percent of spin on a search result or on a Facebook post. So what is the quote that we can tie into all of this, the ancient wisdom that we can weave in our life to make it all make a little bit more sense? Well, today's quote comes from Thomas Aquinas. He writes, there is nothing on this earth more to be prized than true friendship. I love that. Because what, what the shift of where we're going in this broad and decentralized network, it's one reason that we are seeing people in the masses move from fiat currency to cryptocurrencies. It's because they're saying this centralized control, this centralized control is not going to work in my favor. If I believe something that the woke masses don't like, my bank account can be shut off today. If I believe something and I say something that the government doesn't like, my bank account can be shut off today. My service services can be denied to me tomorrow. So people are moving to cryptocurrencies where they can't be controlled. And I think the same thing is beginning to happen with social networks. People are moving away from control into smaller networks of, of relationship where we're saying, I'm connecting with you and you're connecting with me because we have trust between one another, because we have friendship between one another, which is one of the big problems that we see on social media, on, on Twitter and on Instagram, is that we don't have connection and relationship with these massive networks of people. And so we're just treating them like ones and zeros on a screen. I mean, the comments that I read on people's feeds and the insensitivity that people have when they they leave comments, it's it's pretty bizarre. It's like, are people really like like would you say that in real life? But it's become it's been become so fractured and and dehumanized because it's not built around true friendships and true relationships. And that is the direction that I think that you and I should move to. That you should start moving to. It's one reason that I love podcasts and podcasting because it's broad and decentralized. It's being delivered over an RSS feed. It's not, it doesn't have to be delivered through Apple. It doesn't have to be delivered through Spotify, but it can, you can sign up for it. You can decide what goes into your feed and what doesn't. And it's not being curated for you, but you are the curation of your feed. You get to decide the voices that you listen to. And that makes me happy. Podcasting, 
the RSS feed, the decentralized power of it makes me happy. And I'm happy that you probably love it too. Which leads me to the last point. If you want to be more connected, you can WhatsApp me at plus one two zero two nine two two zero two two zero, and you can message me and ask a question that if it's a bad enough question, I might be able to give a bad enough answer to right here on the show. And if you do, I will send you my book for free with a bunch of stickers, my book anchored the discipline to stop drifting. I wrote this in a time of my life where I was drifting in vision and productivity. And so I wrote this as a manifesto to myself. And I'll also send you some awesome stickers like of the green grocer or of the Trojan horse to act as reminders and anchors to remind yourself of principles by which you and I all want to live by. That is all. Go out into this world this week and be someone who uncovers and walks out and lives out your purpose. Someone who asks hard and critical questions to seek to discern the truth. I don't claim to know the truth about everything, but here we seek to discern it. Why? Because the truth is the belt that enables you and I to be productive to go out and to own our futures.